0: You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators. The Fire by Night is a powerful and evocative debut novel about two American military nurses during World War II that illuminates the unsung heroism of women who risked their lives in the fight. It's a riveting saga of friendship, valor, sacrifice, and survival combining the grit and selflessness of Band of Brothers with the emotional resonance of The Nightingale. Teresa Messineo. Correct. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really happy to talk to you about The Fire by Night, your debut novel. Now, I understand that you spent seven years researching this. Tell us why that much research was needed. So tell us basically uh, the story of the book or the the, uh, the plot outline of the book.
1: Well, I had this idea that the women of the Second World War, the nurses, their story had just not been told or not told to my satisfaction. All we seemed to have was a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical where... There's an amateur theatrical production, and people fall in love with older Frenchmen, but nothing bad ever happens. Uh, Even Joe Cable dies very neatly and is quickly buried. So I had this idea of why not tell it from the nurse's point of view? Because if you were an infantryman, all you had to do when your commanding officer said retreat is turn around and run. But a nurse, she cannot leave until her last patient is out. And that meant getting people out of surgery, stabilizing post-op. Orthopedics back then weighed many hundreds of pounds. It was hard to move these men. And very often, nurses found themselves at the front line or even in front of the front line in something like the Battle of the Bulge where the front line moves so quickly, there's no way you can break down a hospital in less than four or five hours. So the MPs who are the very, very rear guard, the last people out before the enemy comes, would yell at the nurses and say, "You know, the Germans are five miles behind you. What are you still doing here?" Yeah. But they could not leave their men.
0: Like they, somehow these nurses were aggravating them. <laughs> and I want to go back to to previous depictions of nurses in World War II and the way that your book, The Fire by Night, differs. It, you even it's interesting. You should say, "You know the." What we often read is sort of this gauzy cinematic take on it. and you you ascribe that sentiment to to one of your two um protagonists. Doesn't Joe say that at the beginning? Doesn't she sort of say she can sort of see herself from above? Yes. and it, it, if it were a movie, then this other thing would happen. But what in what in fact, happens in your depiction um of these two protagonists is really very gruesome. And it's really, very, Difficult and, frankly, heartbreaking. And I think it's very, very interesting how dedicated you were to consistently showing how awful it was and yet how much influence these two women had. So please, set it up. Tell us about the two women that you feature, where they are.
1: Well, first I thought I'd be doing a disservice to these women and to their memory if I candy-coated it. yeah. Um, Also, I'd be candy-coating a war. And I think once you start censoring war, you're more likely to go back out and start another one. So these women um, start out together, start out as nursing students in this city, in New York City. Uh, One's from a small town in Pennsylvania. I'm a small town Pennsylvania girl myself. And one is from Brooklyn. I am 100% Italian. I am the granddaughter and great-granddaughter of immigrants. And as everyone will soon find out who doesn't know already, I am very thinly veiled Joe McMahon. Uh, My name was supposed to be Josephina Berth, and everyone in my class knows I was madly infatuated with the boy in front of me whose last name is McMahon. (laughs) <laughs> so these women go to war, having no idea what they're in for. They themselves might have a romantic view of it. Yes. It seemed like an adventure, and the first time you're out of your town, the first time you're on the
0: yeah. you know, on the ocean. In fact, one of them goes ahead, and the other is jealous. Oh, yes. you, you know, you got uh, to go nurses the-
1: had to spend two years stateside before you qualified for overseas duty. So Kay gets to the Pacific when the Pacific is just that. It is beautiful. It is perfect. It is, to some degree, like the musical. You have um, houseboys and servants, and you have your own cabins that are in stilts above the water. Every night, you have men, balls. Yeah, and men are have, pretty happy to see you. Oh, yes. Yeah, so you have homesick men, but not just American men. This is yeah. a cosmopolitan place. So there's ambassadors and, and royalty. And these girls from small towns are amazed at the impact they're having. So Kay is there. Kay does get to Paradise, but very soon, Pearl Harbor comes. And those women have a horrific journey in front of them because very quickly, we surrendered the Pacific. We surrendered Bataan, and that's where these nurses are caught. They're trying to get to Corregidor, which is a tunnel, which is being buried alive, and that is the best thing they can get to. Um, Some of them make it there. That's horrific in and of itself. And then they make it to Santo Tomas, which is a university. It's still a university in Manila. You can still go there and they are interned. They are not prisoners of war because the Japanese did not recognize them as military officers. These women begged to stay with the GIs who are on the Bataan death march who are going to their own horrific ends. But the Japanese were not, and then just threw them in with um, businessmen and in civilians. And there they slowly starved to death until 1945. So I wanted to tell that story because that is a war of attrition. That is staying sane, as you mm-hmm, starve to mm-hmm, death with no mm-hmm. contact. Japanese did not let the mail through. Japanese did not let the comfort kits through. So they didn't know if the war was over.
0: They, they didn't, didn't know who was alive, who was dead, what what was happening. And that
1: is a very different story than Joe, who Joe is the one from New York City who goes to Europe. And she has a nonstop action uh, experience of the war at In their 20s, their hair is turning white and their teeth are falling out from malnutrition and overwork. These women didn't think they were doing anything special. They thought they were just doing their duty. You got a silver star after 72 consecutive hours of surgery, no coffee break. Yeah. They tried to give the stars back because from their point of view, if every other doctor and every other nurse is incapacitated or killed you're not going to take a coffee break. You have 200 litters of men in the rain outside waiting for surgery. You're just going to keep going until you fall over. And so Joe's war is one of breakneck speed. And it's only when she's cut off by chance that she has time to internalize and take stock of how damaged she is and, and what she has had to do emotionally to survive. And I think both women but especially Joe, because Kay, the, the the physical starvation is so present, it's hard to really think about anything else. But Joe, who is definitely hungry and definitely cold, but now by chance cut off and had some time to think, is realizing that to survive. Like many women, she has had She's to enter it. that in-between world of sanity and insanity, of reality and, and just this amorphous kind of in-between world. And I know women who have done this. I've done it myself, and you know it's not healthy, and you know it's not good, but it is a way to survive these situations, and that is where Jo is finding herself uh, between the French and German border.
0: And you also take these women through to the end of the war yes, and a little bit about how they are treated and how they adapt to civilian life after the war, and and those that's a very distinctive thing as well. I, I really... I, I don't want to make the book um, Fire by Night sound too grim and too gruesome because it's really not. It, it's, it's, so, it's very poignant, that I, that I will say. But what makes it so exceptional is the clarity and the result of the research. I mean, it it, it it just, you know, you trust every word that you've put on the page. You know that it rings true. And I think I read an interview where you talked about one of the vets that you befriended, yes. who was at the Battle of the Bulge, who, yes. when you showed him an early manuscript, basically his comments were not that just that you had the facts right, that you had the feeling, that you you captured the essence of that experience.
1: Yes, that is an incredible, incredible friendship for which I'll be eternally grateful. And even as he read the manuscript in its earliest forms, he went line by line and and that opportunity is is rapidly disappearing yeah. on the planet. But yes, it was the nuance. It was the tone. He said, anyone can do the names and the dates and the places, MacArthur, Manila, and Battles, but just the way people felt and, and the way they, they thought and the suffering they endured. And he found it exceptional for that and also because he was in the European theater and he, even though he had a brother in the Pacific, didn't really yeah, know, didn't know what, what was had going happened on. there. And that's amazing to think of a World War II veteran saying in his 90s, Wow, is that what the Pacific was like? And he also had not met any women because thank God he was not injured, and you only met a woman if you were. So
0: that was that was definitely invaluable friendship there. So why? I I really am I sincerely ask every author I sit down with, why torture yourself this way? Why? I, I mean I'm so glad you you all do, but what is it that drove you to say, I would like very much to write a novel, and I would very much like to write a historical novel about World War II that's going to be as accurate as I'll get? I mean, like, <laughs> why did you do that?
1: Well, for one, it's long overdue. Their story needs to be told. Uh, Seventy-five years later, we have a collective consciousness that women didn't do all that much in the Second World War. Many of the nurses returning from the Pacific, signed an oath of secrecy that they never would yeah. reveal their wartime service. For for 60 years? How <clears> long, yes, long was it? it yes, yeah, for 60 years because with a life expectancy in the 40s, every woman would be guaranteed to have died by then. It's only because of modern medicine and nutrition that we have some women still alive in their 90, 93, I think is the youngest you can be and be a World War II nurse. Um, so So we have that. Um, I'm kind of a leap before you look kind of person. (laughs) And I had this great idea. Wouldn't it be wonderful to write a story about frontline military nurses? This is just me. Uh, I have raised four kids. I've homeschooled for 20 years. I have yet to read a book on parenting or homeschooling. So I had this great idea that wouldn't this be a wonderful story? And then I said, oh, shoot, I better research it quick. Well, that research it Uh quick was seven years because there's not a lot of information due to the oath of secrecy, due to our collective consciousness. I even contacted some official places, museums and official organizations dedicated to medical, uh, military medicine. And they said, stop your research. There were no nurses there. So I'm really thankful for the nurses who were still alive, who wrote down their firsthand accounts. And it's from that firsthand data that I got my information. Um, when I started writing, it wrote itself. Uh, the characters became real. I didn't have to think who goes here and who exits stage left.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Joe just... started
1: fighting with Clark, and Queenie was just too Aww. good to be true. And and Kay had this passionate love affair and then is thrown into starvation and deprivation. Um, going back to a point you made about after the war, it was really important for me to For this novel, at least, to not end like every other World War II propaganda movie. I think, yeah, it's very distinctive. With the happy ending and the war is over and we're kissing in Times Square because it doesn't do service to the trauma they experienced. Uh, Even the men coming back, my great uncle came back from the war, clearly with post-traumatic stress disorder. There was no debriefing for those men. They're docking here in New York in the Queen Mary. They get one line from commanding officer, guys. It hasn't been like that over here. You can't rape and pillage and burn destroy, except for maybe having some petrol and sugar rationing.
0: America's yeah, they the did. way they you left know. it. Yeah,
1: So they couldn't deal. These women were expected to just get over the war. Yeah, uh, With a double standard, we're expected to be the weaker and the stronger sex at the same time. So they were immediately pushed into conventional roles of school teacher or wife or mother. Many of them wanted those roles and went back to them eagerly. But there was no credence given to, you were a prisoner of war. You were pushed beyond all endurance. You were breaking down and just survived. So I wanted to show post-war two women who chose very different paths and had a very difficult time reassembling themselves emotionally. Because I think a, a recurring theme in this book is not that women were in a different war, but they experienced it differently. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. internalized it. They they felt the emotion. And when that soldier dies in your arms, mm-hmm. at least early on before you turn your soul off, that hurts. And that takes a little bit of you. And multiply that 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 times, that's going to take some getting over. And they each try to do that in their own way.
0: Yeah, I, I really appreciated that you showed us their lives after the war. I, I think that was very distinctive, and it was very, very satisfying. And, and like, you, like we've said at the beginning, this is a book that doesn't sugarcoat war. And I think that you have to show the effects on human beings in order to not sugarcoat it. I, I thought it was a great war book. I mean, I know it's, I know it's a, it's a piece of commercial fiction, but I really also think it's important in the sense that it does slow you down and it does make you, you know, remember again how. How really horrible it was, and I think um, one of the things that's interesting to
1: note as I went through it. Now, Joe and Kay are fictitious characters, but without exception, nearly everything else is real.
0: Oh wow, really? So all those other characters are based so, on.
1: So what it's kind of like in a, in a humbler way is Gone with the Wind, yeah, where Rhett and Scarlet got it up. yeah yeah got but it everyone else is real yeah ashley is real right. and, and i've gone on the on the Gone with the wind tour and you are say oh my gosh this is the house <laughs> and this is the church so all the scenes that break people's hearts
0: yeah happen. unfortunately
1: oh, happened those yeah. are the real ones
0: so tell us a little bit about your life and your upbringing because you had an unconventional <laughs> upbringing so tell us about that please Sure. Uh, My parents moved out of New York City
1: and they went for the whole organic gardening, live off the land um, 70s. And I feel sorry for everyone who wasn't a kid in the 70s living that way. You just ran around in your undershorts and fed chickens and goats. And you know, when you felt like doing some schoolwork, you did. My parents ran a very non-conventional, from the loss theme, I say it's a Dharma initiative style (laughs) school, where I spent most of my time feeding gerbils um, learning compound words, you know, tooth plus paste equals toothpaste. Uh, I, I love that one especially. Um, re-listening to the uh, book of Genesis on a record and maybe doing up into the third or the four, or the four times table because, you know, after that it gets hard.
0: <laughs> after this wonderful
1: experience,
0: how, I, many, how many siblings do you
1: have? I have an older sister and a younger brother. Um, the, the best part of that experience was my parents taught me you could do whatever you wanted. So... In life, I said I'm a more of a leap-before-you-look kind of person. Yes, I definitely have four kids without medicine. Sure, I can do that. You know, homeschool for 25 years, yeah, that's nothing. I-, I learned different languages. I-, I, t- I studied different disciplines. I went back to try to get my master's in science a couple years ago. I just will try pretty much anything. After I got to be in high school, I really wanted to play basketball. And that's a strange, strange thing for anyone to change your schooling for. But I wanted to play yeah. girls' sports, so we had Title nine had to go and darn somewhere, it, yeah. I was going to play. So I went to— How uh, tall are you? 5'10". Okay. 5'11 so for away games. They would announce that. So uh, here here I am, 15 years old. I've never sat in, this, in a desk. I don't know how to do anything. And I'm in an honors class because my dad and I fabricated the report card the night before. <laughs> So now I'm in honors class, and I'm asked to write an essay, and I just write whatever I want to write, a free verse
0: on spiders. Because, you, wrote, yeah, you, you essentially yeah. wrote a poem about spiders. And, and you to, handed it to the nun. You're in a, don't Jack let us not forget, you're in a Catholic school. Catholic school, honors class. a big class. detail.
1: And she okay. says, what is this? And I say, um, free verse on spiders. And she goes, you have until tomorrow to write an essay. And I said, what is an essay, Sister? And right there my entire academic life hinges because either I am cheeky and disrespectful and I'm just talking back to a nun or at 15 in an honors class I don't know what an essay is. She said to her credit introduction main body conclusion you have till tomorrow or you're out of my class. So I read Arthur Miller's The Crucible One thing about my alternative schooling, you're really good at reading, so that was nothing. And then I write, um, unfortunately, poor Arthur Miller, an anti-communist piece on The Crucible. I'm sure he turned over in his grave. But sister read it aloud in class, and I just was mortified. I can still feel my cheeks burning because, oh, come on, sister. If you're going to fail me, just fail me. Don't read it first. (laughs) But she gave it a 98, and she said, yeah, you're in my class. And from then on, it was one academic success after the other. I stayed an honor student. I got a full ride to DeSales University, uh, which I loved, um, where I majored in English and minored in biology and theology, and I think took 29 credits one semester because I just felt like overloading. Oh, for goodness sake. Years later, I I contacted Sister Jonathan, and she is... um, the person i dedicate this book to. And she didn't remember that story. She said I'm, i was usually impatient. I don't remember yeah, being you got that one way, of the nice and numbers, I'm glad I'm I ca- come say. in a good day and I'm commuting the grade and giving you the extra two points. You have 100 <laughs> on that essay. So that is uh, a bit of my unconventional unconventional past. Um it stood me in good stead. I would not have written this book. I would not have attempted to write this book while applying to graduate school, and homeschooling for children if I didn't have that crazy kind of just yeah. curious Georgian take yeah. on life.
0: And um, tell us a little bit about your writing process. Who who is your first reader? Who do you give your pages to? My
1: dad. My dad is the first person who told me I could write. Uh, we were watching a terrible miniseries on vampires who were barbers, and he said, at, I was nine years old, You could write something better than this kid. And he had an old computer, (laughs) the the brown screen with the orange letters that would burn through because there was no screensavers yet. And I started writing five, which is still unfinished, something I should get around to. It's about five bandits in Mexico City. And, uh, you know, the main character is me, and the (laughs) second main character is my little brother. Your your brother, yeah. (laughs) And uh, we, you know, had a great time ransacking Mexico City until my alternative schooling caught up with me, and I don't know what Mexico City looked like. So when we got to city limits, I didn't know if there should be a jungle or snow or a desert, and so I gave up. But I didn't give up writing. And so by the time I got to high school, I, you know, learned how to write an essay. And uh, I was enjoying that. By the time I got to college... I was really enjoying journalism and writing for the paper and, and and writing some some bigger pieces, and then even though I for um, twenty years stayed home with the kids and uh, homeschooled, I always was writing. I always was sending things to Avenue of the Americas to anyone. Back when we just <laughs> do unsolicited things, like here's a story about a stork oh, really? and here's nice. a story about an orphan, and you know they didn't get published. Yeah, but I, so I did much. I did enjoy that immensely, and so. My dad is the first person still to this day I'm lucky enough to still have him that I'll say, "Here dad, I wrote something." And he's very cautious. He'll say, "There were no major errors." And that's like a 5-star review. And then after that, you know, you kind of you kind of nickel and dime your way through the edits.
0: And do you read—I mean, you have to—you were researching for seven years and and working for seven years, So, but what is your reading life like while working?
1: We just were talking about that earlier as perhaps a mental health issue. I don't read anything written after 1945, unless it was prescribed reading in college. Um, One of those (laughs) reasons is I just love pre-1945 literature. I hear they wrote some good stuff in the 60s and 70s. You know, I might have to check that out. But it helps me not copy anyone's style. Yeah. I know there's a lot of great literature being written right now about World War II, but I can honestly say I, I, yeah, I can't copy that because I haven't okay. done that. And also, if I took seven years to get firsthand information and data, I want that unadulterated. I want that as it was, but also I want everything. I want the social conventions of that time. I want how people felt about suicide or felt about premarital sex or how they felt Mm -hmm. about nurses in general. Mm -hmm. I mean, nursing was really looked down upon as a suspect occupation because, you know, you're dealing with bodily functions and, you know, both sexes. Say you're going to be a military nurse and be dealing with men exclusively— unheard of. I mean, that was a very, very suspect thing. Yeah. So uh, I want to really be immersed in that. I could probably name the top 10 songs from 1929 to 1939, but I don't even know what's on top 40 right now.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, this has been so fascinating. (laughs) I appreciate it so much. Thank you for taking the time and thank you for writing The Fire by Night. A wonderful book. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. This was a joy. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, and we certainly hope you do, please do subscribe to the podcast. That is easily done by going to your podcast app, searching for Harper Audio Presents, and clicking subscribe. We thank you very much for listening, and I thank very much the production support that I receive every week from Sharon Matlin and Nathan Rossborough. I couldn't do it without them. And tune in next week for another fascinating conversation from Harper Audio Presents.